So often I wish I could hear a biblical author read aloud what they had written so we can hear how they might have wanted it to sound. Case in point, the beginning of Luke chapter 3. This list of names of high-ranking authorities almost comes across as tedious and aggravating as someone reading a list of begats. You ever stumbled upon one of those lists in Scripture? I bet 99% of the time you just skip it. 99% of the time I skip it. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and so on and so forth, I'm hardly past halfway through verse 1 before I'm bored to tears. It reminds me of the, the famous preacher Harry Emerson Fosdick who once said, only the preacher proceeds upon the idea that folk come to church desperately anxious to discover what happened to the Jebusites. <laughs> but we ought to have caught on to Luke's style by now. Luke has a wonderful ear for storytelling. Without Luke, we wouldn't know Jesus' parables of the, the Good Samaritan, or the rich man and, and Lazarus, or the prodigal son. And what would our Bible be without those? Luke loves teasing our ears, too. He, he's both a physician and he's an amateur historian, which means he loves history and he's good at it. And he enjoys setting the context for things, telling us what is, is time now for this, how long it's been since, or who's in charge of. And he begins his stories with leads like, in the days of King Herod of Judea, or in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town called Galilee and Nazareth. In that region, there were shepherds keeping their flock by night. Then here at chapter 3, it seems he goes on with these titles for important officials. But we should be suspicious that Luke is up to something. Because, you see, Luke is not only one of Scripture's best storytellers, he's also one of Scripture's best iconoclasts. Luke shares the gospel for the poor and the outcasts, the ne'er-do-well, the sinner. What does Matthew say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And Luke, I've got to think, is standing back there looking at Matthew and saying, he didn't say in spirit. He just said, blessed are the poor. You're adding in spirit to it. Because <laughs> in Luke, it just says, blessed are the poor. And if we're not from the hard scrabble side of life, reading Luke sometimes can be like sitting on wet bleachers at a football game. You just can't get comfortable. So I wager that Luke's introduction to chapter 3 is the stuff of satire. Just a little bit of satire. Just a little poking the man on high in the ribcage. He begins almost like he's reading a legal document. Or maybe I could amp that up and say, he, just imagine Luke just putting on a powdered wig for fun and saying things like, whereas. 
Whereas Emperor Tiberius reigned on high, and whereas Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and whereas Herod was ruler of Galilee, and whereas his brother Philip was ruler of the region of Ontario. Are you bored yet? And whereas Lysanias was ruler of Abilene, and whereas it was the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas. Luke continues only to end the tedium with a zinger. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. In the year 2007, whereas George W. Bush was president, and whereas Mike Easley was governor of North Carolina, and whereas the beloved mayor, Earl Poplin, ruled over the town of Mount Gilead, and whereas it was the high priesthood of Mac Dennis. <laughs> the word of God came to John Paywood, 15 years old, in a small Baptist church in a small town that you can't get to from here. Noticing his intelligence, his gifts, for speaking and the fact that he was the only young person his age I ever saw to come to church every Sunday in a black suit. <laughs> Fifteen years old. I said, John, I want you to come preach for me. And he came prepared with a sermon that cut to the heart of every person in attendance. It was a simple message of repentance and salvation. As he got started, I thought, oh, Lord, I have unleashed a hellfire brimstone preacher in my little church. But in his own way, John sounded like John. He preached with confidence. He didn't hold back. In an unassuming way, he said, we all needed to repent of our sins and make our paths straight and prepare ourselves for the very challenging but very rewarding, saving way of Jesus. Sinners repent, I remember him saying, <laughs> over and over again. It was an Advent sermon. It's because it scared us all a little bit. And that's how you know you're an Advent. But it awed us all even more. And that too is how you know you're an Advent. And unlike John the Baptist, John preached convincingly of the power of God without ever even once calling us a brood of vipers. The message of Advent has never been notarized or officially sealed or formally authorized. Advent is a message that unnerves and disrupts official stories and narratives of powerful people. The Advent message warns and prepares. Advent warns the mountains and hills that they will be made low, and it encourages and emboldens the valley, saying, you will be filled. So the message of Advent begins with those in the valleys, those grown up out of the red dirt of the wilderness, those otherwise unauthorized to speak. I don't know how many of you may remember Sarah Job, preached here just a few years ago over the summer. She's been a good friend since our years together at Duke and our family sat together at Watt Street Baptist Church in Durham for years, and she was my Sunday school teacher. When she was a first-year seminary student, all hopped up on 
disruptive theologians after her first year of classes, she was arrested and jailed for trespassing on government property. She was intentionally breaching with some other friends the property of the School of Americas, which isn't, I don't think it's called that anymore. It's a military institution that teaches foreign, national, foreign nationals to do very un-advent things in their own countries. And Sarah went there in person to tell them to repent. And her parents get the call in the middle of the night. Sarah, what have you done? Well, it's seminary. I'm learning these things in seminary. I'm just doing what I'm taught. And then her parents called the dean of the divinity school <laughs> in the middle of the night. What are you teaching my daughter? So then the dean of divinity school calls the Baptist professor and says, what are you teaching in these classes? And the Baptist professor says, oh, no, 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 you, you're in this too. We're all in this. We can't expect to be teaching all these disruptive wilderness things to our students and not expect them to go out and be disruptive. In the year of Pax Americana, the word of God came to Sarah in the wilderness. It may be, though, that such forthright activism or standing in a pulpit preaching isn't part of your gift set. I guess I suppose I hope it's not for most of us. <laughs> in that case, I have good news for you, too. For when those hearing John preach in the wilderness became uncomfortable with themselves in that first original John the Baptist sermon, they began to ask him, what on earth are we supposed to do with this? John, tell us, give us some specifics. What are we supposed to do? And it strikes me as interesting that everything he asked them to do was simple and local and personal. You know, all it requires is a change of mind and heart wherever we are. To the crowds, he said, if you have two coats, share with those who have none and do likewise with food. And to the, the taxpayers, he says, wait a minute, take no more than your fair share, the, what, the share that's prescribed to you to take. And even to the very official Roman soldiers who padded their income by simply taking money from those in their precincts, he says, be satisfied with your wages. Don't threaten people. Don't trick them out of a hard-earned dollar. It's all personal. It's what we do with, with our families and with our income and with our employees or with our bosses, I suppose. How we treat each other in the here and now, it's all personal and local from the heart. Just look right around us. Where is the path crooked? How might it be straightened? There are a great many crooked paths that will be made straight by examining what's crooked. Yes, not in others, but in our own hearts, starting right here. That's Advent. Let the Word of God come to us from the unauthorized voices in our presence first. And change our minds about some very heavy things. 
And along the way, we may even find that the unauthorized word of God has gotten out to others through people like us.